listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, Leonid. Hello, Bob. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero uh, Podcast, and you are Leonid Rigozin. Uh, let me uh, start by explaining, um, how I came across your name. Uh, I should say first, you're a journalist who covers foreign affairs, uh, and we will be talking about the Ukraine war, but also to some extent, uh, events in the Middle East. And, and even though that's not your primary realm of expertise, uh, it's something you're observing. And we may talk a little about kind of comparisons, uh, between the two conflicts. Um, so I, in trying to figure out what was going on in Ukraine, I quickly realized after the war broke out that uh, mainstream American media was not a very uh, reliable place to get information. And in general, it was hard to get information uh, because most sources seemed biased in one direction or the other. I would say the U.S. media in favor of, of Ukraine, other sources in favor of Russia. So I compiled a Twitter list that had a combination of kind of, you know, more or less Ukrainian, pro-Ukraine perspectives and pro-Russian perspectives, uh, you know, with varying degrees of bias. I mean, some people are flat out propagandists, but most people, they just have a perspective that colors their view of it, whether they realize it or not. And when I came across you, you struck me as somebody who, although it sometimes became clear you had your views, you seemed like somebody who was unusually good at just viewing the thing objectively. And then I looked in your Twitter bio and it said nationality colon journalist. And I thought that's interesting uh, because, uh, I, and maybe I should actually uh, stop and ask you what you mean by that. Uh, right. Uh, yes, uh, that, uh, that derives from uh, me covering uh, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. And um, uh, yes, I'm a Russian national originally, uh, and uh, I lived most of my life in uh, Russia. But at the same time, I um, I worked in Western media uh, throughout my uh, throughout my twenty plus year career. Um, I didn't really work in the uh, in the Russian media, and I didn't work much in in Russian language in my life. It was mostly English language. Um, so. Uh, this uh, identity game has been uh, uh, played by various uh, actors, by uh, bad actors on on Twitter uh, and on the internet in general. Uh, so I think it was important for me to um, identify, uh, to to sort of um, uh, to to show people my main uh, identifier, which uh, really is a journalist. I'm, I'm very opposite to being a patriot of, of any country. And uh, I, I find myself uh, in, a, in a very comfortable position when I, um, by, by being a journalist, by being uh, nothing, nothing else really than, than a journalist. It doesn't mean that I'm not uh, empathetic to, uh, to people in Russia as, as I'm empathetic uh, towards, uh, to, to people in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, I, I really want to be uh, distanced from uh, nation states, particularly in Eastern Europe. Okay. Um, and the, 
among the Western media, you worked for what you you you've done work for the BBC. I saw you've done a few pieces over the years for the Guardian, uh, and I I don't know uh, where else. You write for the Lonely Planet guides, I guess, uh, and you and you co-authored a book, right? Uh, that is in Norwegian. Um, and I, so I couldn't tell what the title was. Was it something like the European, what, what's the title? The, the title is the European tragedy and, uh, and that pertains to the war in Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, but the, the book was uh, originally designed to be, um, uh, focusing on, uh, largely on Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. so it, a uh, part of it, and that's, that's my part is uh, telling the history of the uh, 20th century in Russia uh, through family histories of uh, uh, people living in uh, Volgograd, uh, told by themselves. Volgograd is uh, the city on the Volga, which is better known in the West as uh, Stalingrad, the place mm. where the Battle of Stalingrad uh, happened. Uh, but it had uh, three iterations, uh, three different names. Uh, one before the October Revolution at Tsaritsyn, it was called after the Tsar uh, mm -hmm. um, until 1917. Then it was called under Stalin and after Stalin's story. Uh, and uh, then after that, it, it got its uh, neutral uh, neutral name um, with with the river Volga in the name. Uh, so that allowed us uh, to uh, to talk about essentially three different countries that existed in the ter territory of Russia in the 20th century, uh, the Russian Empire, the uh, Soviet Union, and two, uh, two different Soviet unions, uh, one Soviet Union that existed until the death of Stalin and the other one that existed uh, after 1953. And then this uh, newly formed country called Russian Federation, which uh, uh, emerged in uh, 1991. So mm -hmm. it covers many, uh, many aspects, but um, mostly the perception of history uh, by various people and not least by Putin's regime, which which is trying to uh, disseminate its its own uh, uh, synthetic uh, version of history, uh, which is which is an interesting subject. And it's uh, synthetic uh, just in the sense of you mean in the sense of drawing on different strands or in the sense of kind of. False. That the word has both meanings in English. Well, uh, they're they're trying to um, marry somehow um, different strains, different um, uh, perceptions of history that existed in these very different countries. Mm -hmm. um, the result, in my opinion, is uh, uh, looks very um, is as very much on the far right flank, and it's. Uh, very radically different to the uh, communist perception of history that I was taught at school. Uh, all the um, heroes celebrated by the communists, and this would be uh, Russian liberals, liberal mm -hmm. czars, liberal, uh, liberal politicians, liberal thinkers in the 19th century and the 18th century. Uh, these are now the enemies. And uh, all those uh, who were derided by the communists as reactionary, uh, suddenly they became uh, heroes in this uh, new reading of history. Um, there is a very interesting attitude to Stalin in particular, uh, who is uh, being described by this new Putinist uh, era historians as, as a monster, uh, but a monster who kind of uh, repented for his sins, monstrous sins, 
and by winning the Second World War. And this is subscribed to his uh, leadership, to which many other historians will uh, disagree uh, with in, in mm -hmm. Russia. So uh, it's it's a very it's very nuanced and uh, and that's that's what the book is largely about. Okay, and one thing I saw you said on Twitter, as I still call it, uh, about the book is that uh, it argues that Putin's regime should be defeated, but alienating uh, Russians is a way to be defeated by Putin. What what do you mean by that? You mean uh, the West? has to be careful not to alienate Russians. And, and if that's what you mean, how, 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 does it, how is it doing that if it is and how does it avoid it? Well, I think uh, the, uh, uh, the conflict that is unfolding now uh, largely stems from alienating uh, Russia and Russians in the 1990s uh -huh. uh, uh, by excluding it from the process of uh, European integration and Euro-Atlantic integration. Um, integrating Russia back in the 1990s uh, should have been a priority given, given its uh, nuclear status. Um, instead of that, uh, the West went for this uh, salami tactics of uh, cutting off uh, little pieces of uh, former Soviet uh, sphere of influence. Uh, and venturing gradually into the um, uh, territory of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and then, of course, um, all the practical issues arose. Uh, for example, uh, um, an opinion poll conducted in Ukraine in 2009 um, showed that 29% uh, of uh, Ukrainians have uh, close relatives in Russia. Close relatives meaning uh, parents or brothers and sisters or children. Mm. Um, I don't know whether it compares, whether it's comparable to any other country, maybe uh, uh, Britain and Ireland, I'm not sure. Uh, but um, almost 30%, that's, that's a huge number. Mm. And so that makes those countries um, look like Siamese twins. So when you start separating them mechanically, and uh, for instance, the inclusion of uh, of Ukraine into the European Union without including Russia into the European Union meant hard border between those two countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that, that of course, uh, that's that's a very surgical approach to to solving this uh, situation. Yeah, and it's resulted in the conflict inevitably. Yeah, let me. Um, that's interesting that you should say that because I mean, when you first started talking about the 90s, I thought you were talking about NATO expansion. That probably is one of the things you were talking about. But the, the EU issue is, I think, underrated. I think uh, a lot of Americans don't appreciate that in 2014, you know, when the whole Maidan revolution happened, you know, and the European Union was inviting Ukraine uh, to have a, an associate membership, uh, that didn't just entail tighter integration economically between Ukraine and and uh, Europe. It also entailed less economic integration between Ukraine and Russia, right? It, 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 and uh, and that's uh, that was. It sounds like in your in your view that all of that was a big was a big issue, as well as presumably NATO. I, I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, I think the, the biggest issue is uh, uh, 
is that uh, the integration should have been uh, synchronized, uh, but it couldn't be synchronized because of uh, because of the general perception of Russia, because of the uh, perception that existed in the 1990s uh, and continued to exist after that, um, that Russia is not something that uh, could be integrated. Right. Uh, and that's that's where the uh, alienation um, uh, came, came in, because the, the Russian elites, uh, all of the Russian elites, including people like Vladimir Putin back in the 1990s, I think they were, uh, they third, they had the solution that they were on course uh, towards uh, integration with the West, uh, mm -hmm. fully fledged integration. And um, I'm pretty sure that uh, somebody like Putin would have become a, a very, a very proper Eurocrat. He's not very different from, from, uh, from the East European Eurocrats, or was not very different until he uh, became the, the kind of monster he is now. Uh, but, uh, uh, that that was an option, uh, but uh, unfortunately, the lingering phobias, uh, the um, the Cold War propaganda, uh, the perception of Russia as something that is alien, that is on the other planet somewhere, uh, that it doesn't belong in Europe, uh, that created the situation where Russia became alienated, and mm -hmm. it was it was bound to end up in a uh, clash of some kind. Uh, and uh, and of course, Russia doesn't look really in this clash, uh, but uh, it it was caused by this kind of policy. Yeah. So I want to get I want to get back to Ukraine and where we are now. I should say, I mean, what you're saying is very consistent with the, my takeaway from having read this uh, biography of Putin by Philip Short, I think is the author's name. It, it's very clear that Putin wanted to be wanted Russia to join the West. And uh, from his point of view, I think the U.S. kept uh, kind of making it hard and, and relations got worse and worse. Uh, but um, the uh, uh, you said something to me before we uh, started uh, taping that's interesting about how the Middle Eastern conflict, the, the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict is being processed in uh, some parts of uh, kind of the, you know, uh, of the, I guess, are you saying uh, these are pro-Ukrainian Russians you were talking about, uh, kind of liberal Russians, you might say as a shorthand, or do I have that wrong? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the main term that is being used uh, to describe them in the West is liberal Russians. Uh -huh. uh, but as, um, as, as is the case with uh, all the, uh, uh, liberal um, East European politicians. Uh, liberal Russians are not necessarily liberal. Majority of them, frankly speaking, are quite illiberal. Uh, if place them into Norway or Sweden, not sure about the United States of America today, uh, but place them into a liberal European country, uh, they'll be very much on the far right. Uh, when When it comes to migrants, when it comes to uh, when it comes to various uh, international conflicts, and so when it comes to uh, to democracy as well, uh, so so it's quite interesting that uh, people who well, can I interrupt you and ask like why we're calling them liberals if they're not liberal when it comes to democracy or when I mean does liberal just mean they support some things the West wants them to support like Ukraine in this war is that 
Well, right. for, for, for for the West, uh, for the West, uh, everybody who is opposing Putin is is liberal by definition. Right. So it's quite it's, it's quite ironic when you look at those uh, uh, forums of uh, liberals, the so-called in in the West. There will be some genuine liberals, but there will be also people who were the far right, who were proudly far right uh, back in Russia. They just uh, happened to be uh, the against against Putin. Uh, and so the, the most extreme of the far right, they ended up in uh, in Ukraine, and uh, they joined the Russian uh, volunteer battalions that are fighting on the Ukrainian side. And many of these people are, are genuine neo Nazis, and uh, that's that's part of that was part of my work as a journalist to to follow because them. But at, at the same time, I mean, some on the far right, as I understand it, in Russia, when uh, the far nationalist right ended up in the Donbass fighting with the separatists in Ukraine, right? I mean, we refer to them as far right. So you're saying like they're all more or less far right and 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 the ones who are on Ukraine side we call liberals. Uh, and there there is there is a whole spectrum. Uh-huh. Uh, like uh, like anywhere in, in Eastern Europe, uh there are uh, genuine liberals in Russia and uh, there is there is a small but fledgling uh, left-wing democratic left uh, that exists uh, among the among in Russia and uh, among the Russian diaspora among mm-hmm. the recent emigres. Uh, however, uh, just in the same way as in the rest of the world, in the same way as in the United States of America, uh, the balance is tilted uh, heavily to the far right. Uh, in uh, in in the current um, uh, anti-Putin community, which unites people of very, very different views. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one, uh, why why the um, why Middle East uh, comes into into play is because um, uh, there was this very interesting situation when uh, people who are supportive of Ukraine uh, and it's it's uh, it's um, a defense against Russian aggression. People who were critical about uh, Putin's handling of Chechnya back 20 years ago, uh, they suddenly come across as extremely uncritical uh, about uh, the um, actions of the Israeli government. And uh, uncritical, not in the sense that they support Israel and they don't support uh, the Palestinians. Uh, they um, identify themselves or they repeat the tropes, the narratives uh, of the Israeli far right. Uh, They uh, side not just with Israel, but they side with Netanyahu and with people to the right of Netanyahu, people in in Netanyahu's government. Like like Ben Ben Gavir and and the other other extremists. Exactly, exactly. And and suddenly uh, you... uh, you read uh, posts by uh, Russian emigrants, including journalists, uh, but uh, political activists mostly, who are pro-democracy activists, who are uh, considered to be liberal uh, in the Russian context, and who suddenly say that uh, um, Gaza should be completely demolished. These people should be kicked out into Egypt. Um, revenge is is the slogan of the uh, of this moment. Uh, we must avenge for for the killings, for the atrocities of the Hamas uh, by essentially uh, 
and leveling Gaza mm-hmm. uh, by so, bombs. So, okay, so these are Russian supporters of Ukraine. I gather these are these are people like uh, some of them are in Ukraine. Maybe some of them are still in Russia. Maybe some of them, like you, are in none of the above. I think you're in Latvia now. Um, is is that um, is that am I right so far? These 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 uh, these the, the community you're talking about of kind of so-called Russian liberals who are in many respects far right. Uh, you're talking about people who are in various places, but you encounter them on the internet. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's the virtual Russia that um, exists on the on the internet. Okay, uh, and that's it's it's largely comprised of people who left Russia very recently in the last two years after the um, uh, fallout uh, invasion in Ukraine. Uh, some of them left uh, earlier. Uh, some of them remain in Russia, and um, they access uh, Facebook and other similar platforms uh, through VPN. Uh, despite them being banned in Russia, um, so again, there is there is a whole spectrum, and okay. uh, uh, the the reason why I brought up is that there there is a very lively and interesting debate with uh, many people who are genuine liberals or who are left wing, uh, who stand up and speak against uh, those attitudes and try to uh, display a more uh, balanced uh, uh, view towards this conflict. Uh, the general bias, the general attitude in, in Russia, and particularly among the liberals, is always and will always be more tilted towards uh, uh, towards Israel. Uh, however, um, many people are showing uh, much greater empathy uh, to what uh, Palestinians are going through and to the fact uh, the understanding of the fact that there is Hamas and uh, who, people who extremists who are conducting those atrocities, and there is a whole range of other Palestinians who just happen to be trapped in this territory. Mm-hmm. So, is the reason that a lot of Russians naturally side with Israel is one reason the whole experience with Chechnyan separatists who were Muslim separatists, and they think of you know, even though the, the, the Israel-Palestinian issue didn't really begin as a religious conflict, and I think not not many Americans understand that. I mean, there are a lot of there are Palestinian Christians who are very unhappy with the occupation and so on. It's it's it has acquired more of a religious cast over time. Um, but in any, it's now thought of too simply, I think, as a kind of Muslim versus Israel thing. But is that the perception in in Russia that inclines a lot of people to side with Israel, the idea that they've got their Muslim extremists and we've got our Muslim extremists, or what? Uh, it's it's many things. Uh, it is that, uh, I agree. Uh, it is also the um, history of Russian uh, intelligentsia during the communist period, uh, when um, uh, people who uh, the demographics of Russian intelligence here. Uh, people who uh, who were allowed uh, to uh, live uh, uh, in in the capital cities in Russia uh, shortly before the communist revolution, and uh, of course, especially after the communist revolution, and there was a, a flow of people from the shtetls, uh, a flow of. Uh, uh, Jewish people into uh, into the big cities in Russia, all of the big cities in mm-hmm. Ukraine as well. 
uh, and, and that formed the uh, Sovietary intelligentsia, which uh, has very strong Jewish roots. Um, so even despite uh, immigration, when you talk the uh, when you talk about uh, intelligence in particular, you find a lot of um, people who have uh, who have uh, personal ties to Israel, uh, either through relatives um, or through uh, their actual through them being of Jewish descent. Or, as in my case, uh, through uh, many, many friends in Israel, definitely many more friends in Israel than uh, on the Palestinian side. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so that's that's very that's very natural uh, for pretty much anybody in the Russian intelligence to be uh, somehow connected to Israel. Not just intelligence, all of the middle class, uh, urban middle class. And so the, there was a major shift in the attitudes uh, all over the country uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was institutionally anti-Semitic. Um, Russia is uh, by and large uh, not uh, an anti-Semitic place now. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, chosen, uh, uh, the chosen objects of uh, hatred in Russia are mostly Muslims. Um, Muslim, specifically Muslims from the Northern Caucasus, mm -hmm. uh, to a lesser extent uh, Muslims from uh, from Central Asia. Uh, and speaking speaking about uh, Jews, uh, Putin is famously uh, sympathetic. Uh, you can find photographs of him uh, attending synagogues and uh, wearing kippahs. Uh, the uh, the Jewish, uh, the official Jewish organizations uh, that exist in Russia are supportive of Putin. There are major uh, Jewish personalities who are uh, taking part in um, uh, in uh, Putin's propaganda machine with respect to Ukraine. So it's it's a very and uh, the relations of between Russia and Israel are quite specific. Uh, you will not really find Israel uh, ever criticizing Putin for, uh, or strongly criticizing Putin for his handling of uh, of uh, the whole situation in Ukraine, for his participation on the conflict. Ukraine is criticizing Israel constantly for uh, not uh, uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, for not uh, providing uh, weapons uh, to Ukraine. But no, for for Israel, that's that's a red line. Maybe it will change after after this war, but uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, Israel, for example, supplies arms uh, to Azerbaijan, and it were Israeli weapons that uh, helped Azerbaijan uh, win the war against Armenia, and which ended up with the depopulation. Some people mm -hmm. would say ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. of uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but uh, Israel uh, does not and probably will not supply uh, weapons to, to Ukraine. Now, Putin, I think, is uh, so far, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he's not stepping in and siding clearly with Israel in the current conflict. Am I right? And I assume that has to do with how he's uh, playing this with respect to the United States. 
largely. And uh, and but but tell me first of all if I'm wrong about that. What is what has he said about the uh, the conflict in the Middle East? Uh, well, uh, for once, Putin is um, is um, saying all the you know reasonable things about uh, <laughs> about Middle East. He is saying that uh, Israel has the right to defense uh, from extremism. Uh, he says that uh, uh, Russia is uh, sympathetic uh, uh, with Israel uh, in that respect as a country which uh, suffered from uh, jihadism, from Muslim extremism in the past. Uh, but at the same time, he maintains that uh, um, that Palestinians also have their human rights and need uh, to be protected. Uh, and uh, also since the Soviet times, the uh, the Russian official position uh, remains that uh, uh, that there should be a Palestinian state. Uh, and that, that hasn't changed. So um, many uh, Israeli commentators, and especially uh, the Russian-speaking Israeli commentators, uh, they tend to interpret uh, Putin's current statements, or the fact that Putin is not siding with Israel, uh, and, uh, as uh, as a sign of uh, of Russia betraying Israel, somehow betraying uh, uh, Russian speakers in Israel, uh, who comprise what is it a quarter of the population, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, but uh, by and large, this is this is consistent with. Uh, uh, Russia's uh, previous position. What's different is that Russia tried not to comment on the Middle East very loudly uh, at all. And now, uh, when this conflict very clearly suits uh, Putin's interests, because it uh, distracts from Ukraine and distracts uh, Western resources from Ukraine, uh, right. Putin has chosen to uh, to speak out loudly. And maybe Russia is now uh, sort of tr busily trying to uh, play some role in uh, mediation uh, because it can do it because it it uh, it sort of it, it can talk to the Israelis it can talk to the Iranians at the same time uh, and it can do many things which uh, the United States or the Western allies uh, cannot do. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's very interesting what Russians uh, what role the Russians might play uh, play in future. For example, with respect to the hostages and uh, to their release, mm. uh, I'm it's, it's you know watch the space kind of story. Yeah, no, that would be interesting if Putin played wound up playing a mediating and constructive role. Uh, I mean, the Chinese were starting to play. Uh, a related kind of role, you know, they orchestrated the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I think in a way, the Biden administration's uh, desire to continue the Trump policy of normalization between Arab states and Israel and even kind of bring it to culmination by bringing Saudi Arabia into that. I think that was to some extent maybe a reaction against China becoming influential in the region. It's like, no, China... China's going to stabilize things. No way. We're going to step in and and destabilize things to show them who's boss. I mean, if you if you believe as I do that 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 normalization drive may have contributed to uh, 
the decision uh, to to launch the Hamas attack, which which a lot of people do. Uh, that's that's I, I don't mean that Biden actually meant to destabilize things. I don't think they thought that far ahead. But but I think uh, I think maybe they were motivated not only by, you know, uh, uh, wanting to serve Israel's interests, but also by wanting to counter Chinese influence in the region. It, it would be fascinating to see how they reacted to uh, an attempt by Putin to play some kind of mediating role. I'm not optimistic about them handling it wisely. Uh, but yeah, as you say, watch this space. Um, yeah, but I think with Putin, it, uh, we need to be clear about uh, the fact that uh, Putin is not interested in this war ending soon. So he, mm -hmm. he might be trying to play mm -hmm. a mediation role, but objectively, he is not interested. Uh, he is interest, uh, objectively, he is interested in this uh, war uh, expanding and uh, and also becoming very long, because uh, then then uh, resources uh, will be diverted uh, to Israel, because of course, uh, Middle East Israel is a greater priority for the United States than Ukraine. Um, and um, for Biden administration, it will be much harder to to sell it to the Congress, to sell the aid to Ukraine to the Congress when uh, Israel is uh, Israel is uh, threatened. So um, uh, Russia may may start to play mediation games, uh, but uh, I don't think they'll be gen genuinely desiring to uh, to to end this conflict. So and when you say he he would like even an expanding war. You think he would like a full-fledged war between the U.S. and Iran? Um, well, it depends. I'm, uh, I mean, it's a good question because, of course, uh, of course, Iran is is helping Russia to wage uh, Russia's own war in Ukraine. Uh, and if, um, uh, particularly if the um, uh, uh, weapon, uh, arms producing plants uh, facilities in Iran are targeted by mm -hmm. uh, the American or Israeli aviation. Uh, then uh, Russia, Russia is also in trouble. And uh, and uh, first of all, Iran will probably be asking Russia to help and to draw some of the Russian resources. But also, Russia right. will uh, will not have as many uh, drones. Uh, first of all, drones are uh, decisive. Uh, appear to be decisive uh, in in this war. Of course, Russia is, is producing a lot of its own drones now, and uh, the Iranian drones will be uh, less and less used by the Russians in in future. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, Russia remains uh, dependent on Iran. So I'd, I'd, I'd expect uh, there will be a balancing act. I don't think the Russians are interested in uh, a, a fully fledged war between the United States and Iran. Uh, but uh, I think they are objectively interested in Israel getting bogged down in Gaza for a long time. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to ask you a question about a tweet you did uh, very recently about um, saying it's interesting the extent to which, well, you, you were linking to a Washington Post piece about how uh, Western experts are concerned that like Israel doesn't have a plan for kind of the, you know, the aftermath of the, of an invasion of Gaza. These experts were, you know, showing a lot of sensitivity to the challenges of, of urban warfare and, and, and orchestrating a kind of political transition after that and so on. You linked to this article and tweeted, it's, it's interesting the extent to which Western expertise is more clear-minded on the Middle East than it is on Ukraine-Russia. 
What did what did you mean by that? In what ways is it not clear on Ukraine, Russia? Right. Well, um, this was referring to uh, particular experts whom I'm not going to name, um, who uh, used to comment on uh, Ukraine and Russia war in a very hawkish way, uh, and um, who started uh, to comment on the um on on this uh new newly emerging war uh, conflict um in gaza and uh, what what i find striking is that uh, uh is the contrast between uh their very careful and balanced approach to the conflict in gaza uh talking about uh, israeli security concerns of course uh, talking about the atrocities and the need to to do something about it uh, about Israel's uh, Israel's right to defend itself, uh, but at the same time uh, talking about Israel's uh, mistakes uh, made particularly by particularly by this government in the past, uh, about Israel's um, tacit support to Hamas as a, as an alternative, as a uh, you know mm -hmm. as, as Netanyahu famously famously said, uh, a way to prevent. Uh, uh, a Palestinian state from uh, emerging. Um, so that's 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 quite that's quite interesting because when I hear the same people talk about uh, Ukraine, uh, it is basically uh, just uh, just about uh, arming Ukraine and uh, uh, throwing as many Ukrainians as possible into the battle, uh, and. Um, it's not that I uh, don't wish Ukraine to win. I do, uh, but uh, uh, the question is at what cost, and uh, uh, yeah. whether it's this uh, victory, if it if it is ever to materialize, which I doubt as well, uh, whether it's not going to be a pyrrhic uh, uh, pyrrhic um, victory for Ukraine. What um, what I find. Um, uh, most mo most of put of Putin uh, in 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 the hawkish analysis of the uh, of the conflict in Ukraine is the disregard for the lives of Ukrainians and for the future of Ukraine. Uh, even in in the situation which seems increasingly unlikely uh, that Ukraine uh, defeats Russia on the battlefield, what kind of country is going to be? Will yeah. it be a democratic country? Uh, will they be able to restore the economy? How many people will be left in Ukraine? Yeah. Um, Six million out of uh, less than 40 million are now out of the country. And I'm living with uh, those Ukrainians in the European Union. I don't think many of them are going to return. And, and every year the war goes on, fewer of them are going to return because they'll, they'll develop roots there and, and, and so on. And uh, yeah, the number of Ukrainians dying, uh, well, we don't have reliable numbers, but it's clearly very high. And, you know, I think it's getting to the point where uh, stalemate is the optimistic scenario for Ukraine. I, I mean, you know, in, in the long run, uh, Russia can marshal more resources than Ukraine can. And Ukraine's supply of resources, well, material resources, I mean, of course, Ukraine's human resources are much smaller than Russia's human resources in terms of number of potential soldiers, but Ukraine's material resources are dependent 
on political events in various countries other than Ukraine. And the Middle East war is a good example. And so I, I'd be curious about your assessment. Just uh, looking at the news lately, uh, of course, you know, the rainy season is coming in, in Ukraine and in the winter. And so there probably won't be a lot of movement one way or another. Uh, but it seems to me, uh, you know, the Ukrainian offensive basically failed. Uh, and I don't if one side or the other has momentum at the moment, I'd say it's as likely to be Russia as Ukraine. I mean, no, nobody's making dramatic progress. But do you do you think there's a realistic possibility of Ukraine losing considerable amounts of territory relative to what they have now? Uh, conceivably, even you know large quantities in the long run, uh, uh, and con con conceivably even losing the country. In effect, well, what's your take on how bad things could realistically get? Uh, well, I'm not a military expert, so I, I cannot uh, really um, assess it uh, professionally on the military side. Um, the the hope on the military side side for Ukraine. Is, is mostly linked to um, to cutting off uh, Crimea, uh, and uh, to that effect, uh, the Ukrainians are now trying to uh, create a bridgehead on the left bank of the Dnipro uh, River uh, near Crimea. Uh, so we 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 see uh, Ukrainian landing forces there, uh, and uh, Russians uh, repelling them and. Uh, from from the tone of Russian military bloggers, um, who are quite influential now, uh, I I can see that uh, uh, they consider it to be a, a serious threat, but uh, not something insurmountable. Something that should be uh, that, that something that Russian command should be paying attention to, but uh, not something that uh, cannot be defeated. But at the same time, uh, reading the latest briefs. Uh, including Ukrainian briefs, including Ukrainian military bloggers such as Deep State. And we're seeing that uh, the Russians are on the offensive in the north, uh, uh, near Kupiansk. Uh, um, the Russians suddenly are on the offensive near Bakhmut, where Ukrainians uh, gained some territory recently. Um, the Russians are trying to seize uh, the Ukrainian stronghold in Avdiivka. Um, so pretty much everywhere, except uh, for the um, for the lower reaches of the Dnieper, is the Russians, not Ukrainians, who are now on the on the offensive. Um, whether that will result in um, uh, in swaves of Ukrainian territory being captured in the future, um, I'm not sure it will. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Putin is uh, and the Kremlin in general is uh, is interested in uh, gaining uh, more territory. It's not very practical because they built the defense line in um, uh, where, where they built it. They, they, uh, I'm not sure they want to build another defense line elsewhere. Uh, they, what they're doing now is that they are trying to push uh, uh, short-range uh, artillery away from Donetsk, from the most populous, from the main population center in the occupied territories. But they uh, want to so push Ukrainian artillery away. Yeah, uh, okay. Donetsk, uh, uh, Donetsk uh, the, the large city uh, in the the largest city in the occupied territory, is uh, is now positioned smack on the front line. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and Avdivka, which the Russians are now trying to capture, is the main Ukrainian stronghold from where they can pound uh, Donetsk with uh, short-range artillery. Uh, so that's that seems to be Russia's uh, immediate concern uh, to uh, to capture Avdivka, which will be, of course, uh, a moral boost uh, for for them. But uh, there is there is the practical issue of. Uh, of the bombardment of uh, uh, Donetsk. I mm -hmm. don't think, it doesn't look like that uh, Putin is keen to uh, allocate more resources uh, to start a new, uh, greater mobilization uh, in order to capture uh, swathes of uh, Ukrainian territory. I think his, his whole philosophy is to uh, force Ukraine into negotiations. And then when negotiations come, basically uh, anything, uh, any arrangement that is worse than Minsk agreements that uh, that existed before this uh, uh, full-out invasion, any arrangement uh, that is worse for Ukraine than Minsk agreements means uh, uh, Ukraine lost and, and Putin mm -hmm. and Putin won. And uh, so, sorry. Okay, so he wouldn't he wouldn't just return. He certainly wouldn't return to just the the, the the Minsk agreements as they stood, which would mean Russia withdrawing from a lot of the, the the territory. That was the idea of the Minsk agreements: was that Ukraine would be whole again, uh, and the Donbass would be part. The Donbass would be part of Ukraine, but the Donbass would have certain kinds of autonomy. I mean, do you agree? First of all, Putin's not going to move his troops. Back, he's going to want to hang on to any territory he's got, more or less. No, absolutely, uh, absolutely. That was uh, that was part of the escalation. Uh, it didn't happen immediately. He waited. Uh, he um, conducted negotiations with Ukrainians uh, uh, back in in March two thousand twenty two. Uh, the negotiations they were mediated by by the Israelis. Uh, as well as by uh, Herbert Schroeder recently, the, the main was uh, the main uh, talks were negotiated by uh, Naftali Bennett. Um, so, uh, so when uh, all of that failed, and some time after that failed, uh, he decided to annex uh, those territory formally and make them part of Russia. Uh, so that I guess is non-negotiable for him. Uh, well, that's, can I just interrupt and say, that's what worries me about uh, his possibly having larger territorial aspirations. It seems to me now that he has said, I've annexed these four oblasts, it seems as a political matter in Russia, you know, he would rather be able to say Russia actually has them, right? Certainly the two in the Donbass, right? Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, and that would that would require... Uh, acquiring considerably more uh, territory, I guess, especially in Donetsk, and certainly if he tried to do it in all four of the of the provinces, right? Well, uh, they they, uh, they have never been very specific about what uh, they are annexing and whether mm -hmm. they are annexing the um, entire territories of uh, of these regions. Uh, so at the moment, they don't control uh, entire territories of any of these regions. Even mm -hmm. in Luhansk region, they uh, don't control some smaller, s small parts of Luhansk region. Uh, so when it comes to negotiations, I think it's pretty clear from uh, 
various statements or all the sounds made by the Kremlin uh, that um, although what they hold already is probably not negotiable, non-negotiable, um, the remaining parts of uh, uh, of these regions are probably negotiable. And uh, the main thing uh, for Putin, the main two things for Putin, uh, re- have always been and remain uh, Ukraine's neutral status uh, and uh, the the rights of uh, the Russian language in Ukraine. And no, guess, no NATO. No neutral status means not being in NATO. And yeah, basically going back to to what used to be a part of the Ukrainian constitution, uh, neutral status. So uh, inability to, for Ukraine to join NATO or any other military alliance. And the, and you uh, said the other thing is the language, the status of the Russian language. Yeah, the the other thing is the status of the Russian language in the. Um, in in parts of Ukraine where a majority of people speak Russian language, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so so now Russian language is uh, is being uh, actively uh, squeezed out of the public space in Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. which um, which to an extent is a bargaining chip for the Ukrainians because that's uh, in in negotiations that's the easiest thing they can revert to. Because this this is this will also bring them to you know this will bring more consistency with the European laws in the first place, mm-hmm. with the standards of the European Union. If they uh, if they uh, re- resurrect the restore uh, rights of the Russian speakers in the country, uh, so that will be um, uh, easy for them to to concede in negotiations. Um, so, um, so what I think this, uh, uh, what I think about this, uh, this uh, stalemate, uh, is that uh, Putin is more interested in uh, in maintaining the status quo on the front line, relative status quo on the mm-hmm. front line, uh, until uh, Ukraine is uh, coerced into uh, negotiations on Putin's terms. And I don't think uh, he'll be allocating any additional resources into uh, into occupying greater uh, greater parts of Ukraine unless uh, uh, an opportunity to for, presents itself for him to do it without allocating mm-hmm. those resources. Okay. Um, so listen, we've been talking close to an hour. Uh, what we generally do in this podcast is. Uh, most of the conversation is is a public podcast, um, but uh, then uh, at some point uh, the paywall descends and we go into uh, overtime, uh, kind of, and and to access the full conversation, uh, people can become paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter uh, by googling Non-Zero and Substack or clicking a link in the show notes in their podcast app. Um, and then after that, you can uh, set up a, a podcast feed that will just have all of these over. Uh, we'll always have the full conversation, including some conversations that are only on that feed. And you'll have access to all the print uh, material in the newsletter. And uh, you'll be supporting conversations like this if you think that's worthwhile. Um, and Leo Need has been kind enough to agree to uh, continue talking. Uh, but before we move in, and, and, and in that segment, I want to ask you, uh, a few things like 
what is what do you think the Ukrainian government is thinking if, as you and I agree, the continuation of this war is actually not in Ukraine's interests and, and the government shows no evident desire to move uh, very rapidly toward peace talks? Um, I also want to get, get back to uh, a conversation about how the Middle East is being processed uh, in certain parts of the Russian uh, community. And then I want to um, uh, ask you more as well about uh, what the wise way is for the for the West to undermine uh, Putin if they want to do that. Uh, but first, I want to encourage people to follow you on Twitter. Uh, your, your Twitter handle or X handle, as some people say, is L-E-O-N-I-D-R-A-G-O-Z-I-N. Uh, it's really, really a good uh, feed for information on the Ukraine war and other things. And then I uh, I want to give you the opportunity uh, before we go into overtime to say anything else you want to say just by way of, you know, clarifying anything you've said or punctuating anything you've said. And also anything you want to say about where people can find your your work, where else you would steer them besides your Twitter feed. Okay. Um, well, um, I've, um, I haven't been uh, publishing uh, many uh, stories recently. Uh, as uh, as I was working on the on this Norwegian book and then on a series of Lonely Planet guides, uh, but I'm I'm going back into business now, uh, oh. so probably find uh, uh, more of my stories on uh, on uh, my opinion pieces on Jazeera. Uh, my uh, did you say did you say uh, Al Jazeera or did I yeah, yeah, yeah okay Al Jazeera Al Jazeera and. Um, my main political pieces will be, unfortunately, in Norwegian language in the newspaper called uh, Morgan Morgan Blooded, uh, and um, uh, some of the stuff that I write about uh, uh, politics and uh, tech uh, appears in the um, in the American publication called Rest of World. Oh yeah, Rest of World. Okay, uh, the, the the premise of that title being that the U.S. Uh, mainstream media does not cover all of the planet very consistently. Um, exactly. And, and, and uh, okay, uh, great. So uh, thanks to everybody who's been with us this far, whether or not they follow us into overtime, something that I, of course, encourage. Uh, and overtime is where we're heading.